All right, so many, many years ago, I had a friend who was pulled down into an undercurrent. Uh, One minute we were swimming and having fun in Lake Michigan, and the next minute our friend disappeared in the crashing waves. And so we became a frantic search party. And as I think back to that day, I think that we all hesitated to call for help, to call the park rangers or whoever you call in those situations, because we knew intuitively that to call for help meant that it was the worst. If we didn't call for help, maybe there was a chance. So in what felt like hours, but was probably more like 10 minutes, we saw our missing friend walking down the coast of the beach. You see, uh, instead of fighting the undertow, they let the undertow take them out as far as it would, and they swam back to shore and walked back to us. But I have to say, in that time between loss and return, I felt a very real loss of hope. And if you've lived long enough, you know that feeling, don't you? It's when all the positive, good, or decent outcomes just do not come. They're not, they're not there. And there's a reckoning. Well, my story ended well, but it doesn't always, of course, end well. Um, I was, I'm currently reading this book by Stephen Marsh. It's his memoirs on marriage and fatherhood and family. And in his chapter, The New Fatherhood, he writes how he learned about his father's death while dropping his son off for kindergarten. Here's the quote. You can read it behind me. The first break I had all day was in the afternoon. On the talk to pick up my son, on the walk to pick up my son from kindergarten to tell him that his grandfather no longer was. My father and my son had been close the night before dad died. They had been out for ice cream. And so the walk, the the quiet, decent houses shaded by awkward trees, was freshly drugged by sadness and dread. How was I supposed to explain to my son what made no sense to me? And so this moment, when all that we know as safe and predictable and happy suddenly becomes drugged with sadness and grief. I want to call that moment, if you've been there, I want to call that moment day four. And let me tell you why. Because in the ancient Near East, in the ancient context in which we just read in in John chapter 11, uh, there was a tradition. It wasn't necessarily a biblical tradition. It was just a cultural tradition, which said that somebody who died didn't really die. It didn't really sink in until day four. It took three days, the, the, the folk tradition said, for the soul to enter Sheol, the place of the dead. And so for them, culturally speaking, this would be like the day where uh, the day uh, the, the, the interment service the burial service and for many folks 
and myself included, that is when it gets real. That's when it feels real. That's when it feels like there's no turning back. And in the ancient culture, that's exactly how they felt on day four. Maybe something's wrong. Maybe a doctor can help. Maybe somebody can turn it around. But day four... So day four is the hardest day. It's the final day. Things can feel hopeless on day four. In our text this morning, in chapter 11, we meet two grieving sisters on day four. Their names are Mary and Martha. You've probably heard of them. And they have a brother named Lazarus. And Jesus loved all three of them dearly. He often stayed at their house. And so when Lazarus gets sick, look at verse 4. And verse 3 of chapter 11. When Lazarus gets sick, the sisters send a messenger to Jesus saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But for reasons that we probably don't understand and definitely don't, didn't make sense to, the, uh, to Mary and Martha, it takes a while for Jesus to come. And so verse 17, if you fast forward, tells us that by the time Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Do you see it? Verse 17. Mary and Martha were not just grieving. They were grieving on day four. When it felt hopeless. Their hope was drained. Their brother was really gone. And so the question uh, that this text forces me to deal with and forces you all to deal with is this. What do we do as broken followers of Jesus? What do we do on day four? Well, there's a repeating word in this section that I think points us in a direction of an answer. In verse 15, Jesus tells his disciples that Lazarus' death will somehow help them believe. Do you see that word? And then in verse 25, if you scan down, Jesus promises resurrection to all who believe. And then in verse 26, Jesus asks Martha if she, what? Believes. Verse 27, Martha says, Yes, Lord, I believe. Verse 40, Jesus reminds Martha at the tomb about belief. And then in verse 42, Jesus prays to the Father, His Father, giving us a glimpse into His purpose in all of this. That they may believe. And so what do we do on day four? We believe Jesus. That's what we do. And that's pretty vague. I know that's pretty vague. So let's break that down uh, this morning. First thing I'll say is this. This passage presses us to believe that Jesus is greater than difficulty. Take a look at verse five. Chapter 11. I think verse 5 
and verse 6, when taken together, forms a very, very challenging but helpful paradigm for us on day four. It says two things. One, Jesus loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Verse 5. And two, verse 6, that Jesus delayed his help. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed. That word stayed is like a scandal. Isn't it? That word stayed. Don't you just want to mark that out for Bible? But that verse, verse 5 and 6 together, is a dynamite that will explode, I think, the most pervasive and destructive Christian myth. And it's this. And listen carefully. It says, if Jesus loves me, he will not allow me to endure any kind of difficulty. If Jesus loves me, he won't allow me to endure any kind of difficulty. Verse 5 and verse 6 together says, Jesus can love you and allow you to endure difficulty. We have to wrestle with that one. Jesus loves you in difficulty. That's what verse 5 demands us to believe. Just because Jesus isn't on your timeline doesn't mean he doesn't love you. That's, that's what it says. Right now I'm reading the Chronicles of Narnia and I'm embarrassed to say it for the first time, all of the Chronicles together. Um, As an adult, uh, I'm reading them even. And it strikes me that one of the biggest themes in this series is the absence of Aslan, the lion. As I'm reading this, I'm noticing that that's one of the pervasive themes is reckoning with, wrestling against the reality that Aslan is apparently there, but not there. He's somewhere over the eastern sea. We don't know Aslan's land, but he's very often not where we want him to be in the moment. And so, for instance, in Prince Caspian, if you've read that, uh, the Narnians, they blow Susan's horn. And what happens when you blow Susan's horn? Do you remember? Anybody? Yeah? Help comes. Help comes when you blow Susan's horn. Uh, And and it's supposed to bring immediate help from Aslan, but there is a long wait between the horn and the help in Prince Caspian. So long, in fact, that there are some Narnians who who start summoning the dark magic to bring about the white witch again. Because the white witch will come and sort things out. And she'll come quickly. And she'll come at my bidding. And so there's a difference between the witch and between Aslan. And I think Lewis is on to something with his Narnia Chronicles. <laughs> Jerry's out. <laughs> it's a good read. It takes faith that Aslan knows what he's doing. Belief. When Aslan arrives in in Prince Caspian, he arrives in his time, which is the right time. And that's not all. We discover that in the story, he's actually walking alongside the children the whole time. And there's this great picture when Lucy discovers that very reality. He's there protecting them. They just didn't see it. 
And so Jesus is greater than your difficulties. Some takeaways about this reality. First is this. Let's all, as, as followers of Jesus, let's, let's play judo on our difficulties. And what do I mean? Well, in judo, you take the momentum of your opponent and you use it against them. And isn't that the cross? I heard it said before that at the cross, Jesus in a way plays judo. He takes the best Satan can throw at him. And, he, and what looks like victory for Satan actually ends up being victory for Jesus. What looks like defeat for Jesus ends up actually being victory for Jesus. And if we have a cross-shaped discipleship with Jesus, then we will ask a different question about our difficulties. We will say this. How might God be using this difficulty to shape me? into a disciple of Jesus. This passage challenged me this week to reckon with this question. Is all struggle spiritual attack? And I came to see that sometimes, sometimes, it's Jesus' school of discipleship. Sometimes it's his proof that he loves me. Verse 5. I think this also calls us to pray. I think this is how uh, we access the presence and the power of Jesus in our difficulty. So that in every instance, the one redeeming reality to whatever difficulty you're in is that you have immediate access to Jesus. We get to lean into Jesus uh, who is in complete calm control. When you read this passage, you get the picture that Jesus is in complete calm repose during all of this. You get the sense that he knows how the story is going to play out. You get the sense that there's something redemptive about, about him in this. And so that we, and when we're experiencing what Mary and Martha were probably experiencing on those days, we get to lean into Jesus and experiences peace in a new way. So we must believe that Jesus is greater than our difficulties. But we must also, second, believe that Jesus is greater than our doubts. This passage is a saga of doubt. Let me explain what I mean. First, look at Thomas in verse 16. Thomas in verse 16 Thomas is one of the disciples of Jesus. And after Jesus says, hey, we're going back to Judea because he heard about the death of Lazarus. This is what Thomas says. The disciples say in verse 12, Lord, if, if, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. And if you actually scoot up even before that, you say, they, they say, Rabbi, the Jews, and this is in verse 8, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? And Jesus says, yes, I'm going there again. And so for the disciples, this is a complete kamikaze mission for them. Because if you were to look in chapter 10, the disciples and Jesus himself almost died. And so Jesus is like, we're going back. And Thomas here at the very end says these words. He says, let us also go that we may die with him. So he says, we're going to die with Lazarus. What's interesting to me to know is that, is, that, is that Thomas in this passage is a mixture of faith and doubt. On the one hand, he's, he's all faith. He's following Jesus even though he knows it means his death. That's amazing. Yet on the other hand, he's completely deaf to Jesus' promises to bring new life. His promises about resurrection. And so he completely misses the point at the end when he says, alright, we're just going to die. Look at Martha. 
Martha, too, is a mixture of faith and doubt. So that in verse 21, when Martha sees Jesus, Martha says these words, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha says, I know, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. So, so Martha responds with a, with a systematic theology truth. Um, Jesus says, your brother's going to rise. And Martha says, as if she distances herself from him with theology. And Jesus presses in even deeper. He says, no, 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 no. You don't understand. I am the resurrection you're talking about. Because Martha had a very orthodox understanding that in the last day, in the last day, in the future, all that are, that are righteous will rise. And that's all, that, that's all that she quotes at this point. And so she too, I think, is a combination of both faith and doubt. She has, a, she has faith in the promises of God that resurrection will happen. She has faith even that, that God will do whatever Jesus says. But yet in the if question, I see doubt. I see, I see her saying, if you were here, things would be different. She can quote the orthodox position of future resurrection. But today, resurrection? Doubt. And yet Jesus is patient with her. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. And what he wants from Martha is to move from a theoretical hope into a personal hope in Jesus. Look at Mary in verse 32. Mary also is a mixture of faith and doubt. When when she sees Jesus, she says the same exact thing as her sister. If you were here, things would be different. Instead of talking theology, if you know anything about Mary and Martha, this will completely fit the picture. Instead of talking theology, what does she do? She falls and weeps. I think this if question of Mary shows faith and doubt. It shows faith. If you were here, you could have done something. It shows doubt. But you weren't, Jesus. Now what? I think Jesus' closest friends in this passage are a mixture of faith and doubt. But Jesus is not harsh or patient, but he's patient. And he's that way with you as well. The extremities of life in which Mary and Martha are are situated in in this passage often stir doubt. So if you have indeed tasted what Mary and Martha are experiencing on day four, you know that your faith is often stirred and disturbed. Jesus knows this. That's what I draw from in this passage. Jesus rebukes the Pharisees who have it all together. Jesus is tender and patient with his friends who are a mixture of faith and doubt. And don't you see it? We see their acts of faithfulness. Thomas saying, I'll go, I'll go, even if it means I die. We see Martha's faith in the future resurrection even when there's death in front of her. We see Mary's faithfulness rising when Jesus says, come. They probably didn't. They probably just saw their doubt. 
That's the same for you. If you're struggling, if you're suffering, and you're just wrestling with doubt with God, that's all you see. It's clouding you. But your friends here, the very fact that you are here is proof that God is holding you. That His faith in His people and His faith in Jesus is stronger than your faith in Him. I think that's great news. Everything Jesus does in this passage is to build their faith, not rebuke their doubt. He did all this so that they would believe. The very fact that he delayed, Jesus says, I do this because it's going gonna, it's gonna to shine forth my glory and they're going to believe. Everything is oriented towards them and their, their, their growth. Even as they doubt, that's the grace. Jesus doesn't say, all right, stop doubting, stop getting rid of your, of your faithless grief, and then I will meet you. No, Jesus meets them, heals them, is patient with them in their doubt. Uh, so recently, uh, we had to clean lotion out of our littlest Lou. Do you know little Lou? Little Lou had lotion in his eyes, sun lotion, which is the worst. We thought he would get over it, and he wasn't getting over it. It was really bad. And so what we had to do at the pool was we had to hold, my wife and I had to hold Lou underneath the sink. And the water's coming down, and my wife had to, had to put water in his eyes. And we had to open his eyelids even just to get the water in there. And he was screaming bloody murder. He, it was not okay for him. <laughs> but we knew that his tears weren't cleaning anything. We needed to do something. And so we were loving him. We were caring for him. Does Lou trust his mom and dad? Yes. He loves us. In that moment, did he have doubt? I think so. Did that change our love for him? No, we kept at it. We kept at it. So does he. So does he. Maybe you're in a season of doubt like Mary and Martha. Maybe you're struggling because of grief. What can you do right now? What can you do? Well, I think uh, Teresa of LaRue is really helpful here. She was a, a 19th century nun. And it helped her to think of her faith as the little way, she would call it. The little way. And she writes, and here's the quote, you can read behind me. Jesus does not demand great deeds. All he wants is self-surrender and gratitude. That is all Jesus asks from us. He needs nothing from us except our love. For Teresa, that is the little way. And I'm here to say, if you're in grief, if you're racked with grief, then look at Mary. She rises up. And she falls to Jesus and weeps. That's a little way. Little steps of faithfulness. We don't have to knock it out of the park. What God is calling for is surrender and gratitude. And that's good news. Nothing flashy. You don't have to have it all together. So Jesus is greater than difficulty and doubt, two enemies. But ultimately, I think this passage presses us to believe that Jesus is greater than the greatest enemy that there is. And that's death itself. Paul, St. Paul, the Apostle Paul, he would say that death is the final and the greatest enemy. And so Jesus here 
is greater than death. You can believe Jesus because he is indeed greater than death. Why? Well, there's three reasons in this text that I think Jesus is greater than death, and it's this. The first is this. Jesus is sad at death. Jesus, Son of God, in verse 35, take a look, weeps. How can you trust Jesus when you're grieving death? Why is he believable? Why why would you trust him? Well, I think one very significant, perhaps the most significant reason is because Jesus is God in flesh weeping. He gets sad at what you get sad at. When you're weeping and grieving, did you know that he's weeping and grieving too? There's another reason. Jesus doesn't just get sad at death. He doesn't just cry at death, but he is disturbed by it. Uh, In verse 33, it says he was deeply moved, which in the ancient language, not English, is the word indignant. He was angry in his spirit and greatly troubled. We have grown so accustomed to death. Of course we have that we say things like such is life or, or it must've been their time or, 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 or God needs another angel or something like that. These are the things we say to death, (laughs) but Jesus does not accept death or trite slogans that brush the, 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 the absolutely insane terribleness of death. He does not accept that. He rages against death. He created the world. And sin and death and destruction, he looks at it and he is outraged. His creation is not made for this. If you're an artist and you see your work of art being used for another purpose than what you intended it to be used for, you get maybe a fraction of what Jesus probably felt when he saw death. So Jesus is sad about death. He's angry about death, but that's not it. He actually does something about it. He not only says he's resurrection and life, but he backs it up with action. Two words, Lazarus rise. And Jesus there shows himself victorious over death. What does it mean to believe Jesus in the face of death? Whether it's your own death, the death of a loved one. Well, let me just say, first, you have permission to hate death and what it does. Jesus does. And not just physical death, death of all kinds. Jesus does. Number two, I think you may not get answers from God to all of your questions that surround this. But you do get his tears. Which means, I think, cry with him. And number three, I think this passage gives us permission to hate death. To weep at death. But it gives us something more. 
as Paul would put it, do not grieve as those who are without hope. We can weep, we can rage, but do not do it as those who do not have hope. This passage gives you hope because in the rising of Lazarus, you see two previews. Preview number one, you see the preview of the resurrection of Jesus himself. Lazarus will enter a grave again. Jesus does not. Number two, you see a preview of your own resurrection. If your trust is in Jesus, death does not have the final word. I wonder if you've seen um, The Raising of Lazarus by Vincent Van Gogh. Have you seen this painting? There's a fascinating backstory to this painting. Uh, His brother, Teo, sent him a letter with a Rembrandt sketch that Rembrandt sketched of the raising of Lazarus, this exact story that we've been reading. And we see in, in Vincent's response letter that, that Vincent was in a very dark place. He was in a very low place. And that sketching uh, lifted his hope. And so what we see in this painting is we see him actually painting the sketching that his brother Teo sent him. With one big difference. Lazarus has a red beard. Who else had a red beard? Vincent van Gogh. What he did in this painting is he saw himself in Lazarus. He saw someone dead without hope, without resources. And he saw hope. Hope and resurrection. I've heard it said before that uh, in our story, death does not have the final word. Death is indeed an opening, a gate to a new life. So I don't know where you are. You very well might be on day four as we speak. You may need this sermon as preventative medicine for when day four does come, but I promise you it will. And when it does, grieve, wail against it. But hope in Jesus. He defeats death. And he did once and for all. And our future in him is bright. Jesus, we come to you now then. Asking that you would speak powerfully to our lives as you did Lazarus. Bring us to new life this morning. Maybe we're here and we've never really thought about following you or trusting you. We didn't know what the point was. Now we see the death, the final enemy. Now we see the point. You're the only answer to death. You're the only answer to day four. So meet us now in this space. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.